Well, good evening. I invite you to join me in your copy of the Holy Scripture this evening. Psalm 67 is where we'll be this evening, as was read just a moment ago, Psalm 67. There are numerous different types of psalms in the Psalter. There are psalms of thanksgiving and lament and wisdom and prayer and imprecation. There are prophetic psalms and messianic psalms and pilgrimage psalms and royal psalms. And of course, most often, however, we think of the psalms or the songs of praise. Psalms or songs of praise. However, you might be interested to know that technically only one psalm in the Psalter is actually titled a psalm of praise. And that's Psalm 145. It's not titled a psalm of David, it's titled a praise of David. But nonetheless, there are perhaps more than 20 of the psalms in the Psalter that we could classify as praise psalms or psalms of praise. And when we read the psalms of praise, we we might find them um, to be subcategorized or classified in these ways. Some of those praise psalms are declarative. Declarative praise psalms. That is, they declare, either an individual or a community declares their praise to the Lord and calls others to do the same, to praise the Lord. One example of this would be Psalm 66. Perhaps right across the page, you see it there, Psalm 66. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your your name. And so there's a, a declarative psalm of praise. But then other praise psalms are not declarative, but rather they're descriptive. That is, they are describing ways in which we are to praise the Lord or why we are to praise the Lord. One example would be Psalm 136. You don't need to turn there. But it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then in each of the 26 verses of Psalm 136, over and over and over again, Psalm 136 says, For his mercy endures forever. And so there are psalms of praise or praise psalms that are declarative and those that are descriptive. This evening, I would classify Psalm 67 as a praise psalm, a psalm of praise of both declaring and describing praise to the Lord. And and I hope that we'll find that to be clear as we read and study through Psalm 67. However, as we come to the reading of Psalm 67, I discovered that there are differences in the formatting of Psalm 67 in our English Bibles. For example, notice in your English Bible that Psalm 67 may be formatted with two paragraph breaks. Now, this of course is going to depend on the English Bible that you're carrying. My New King James provides a paragraph break. It's subtle, but it's there between verses 2 and 3 and again between verses 4 and 5. Between verses 2 and 3 and again between verses 4 and 5. The ESV puts the space between verses 3 and 4 and again between verses 5 and 6. The NIV format is different from either of those while the the King James and the New American Standard don't provide any formatting. And the bottom line is that there is difference of opinion as to how this psalm should be read 
as indicated by the, the English translators. You say, Pastor, I, I, don't, I don't see any of that. Okay, that's fine, but at least I made you look, right? And, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to look closely at the scripture text when you read it and when you study it. You need to, to note perhaps punctuation or paragraph breaks and such other literary devices for aids us in our reading and understanding of the scripture. So regardless of the, the variety of English formatting decisions and differences that that we have before us. One thing is clear and consistent across all of our English Bibles, and that is at the end of verse number one, and at the end of verse number four, there is that mystery word, selah. It's found some 75 times in, in the Old Testament, not just only in the Psalms, but throughout the Old Testament, 75 times, and it appears to be a musical notation indicating an intended pause. It probably calls for a moment of reflection, and we understand that. And then one other important point to notice in this psalm before we we study it specifically is there is a repetition of a chorus or a refrain in verse 3, and then find it again in verse number five. Verse three and verse number five. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so this is how I come to the, the scripture text and how I approach a psalm and, and trying to understand the, the reading of it and the, the rhythm of it and the repetition of it. And I don't only, always, only read from my English New King James Version, but there on my computer screen I have in parallel com- columns my New King James and the ESV and the New American Standard and the NIV and the the King James Version and the Hebrew text, which isn't always helpful (laughs) to me, but it's it's there, right? And um, and, and, and from these things, I I then try to put together and package an outline. You know I'm a little bit obsessive about outlines. How can I best present the the teaching of, of, of the psalm? And I've arranged my notes this evening to emphasize not so much the structure, the literary structure, but the dominant themes of the psalm. And I, I believe they are the worship and the work of God, is what I've titled our study this evening, the worship and the work of God, that is man's worship of God and God's work for man. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll study Psalm 67 together. God in heaven, we thank you for your rescue of us by your mercy, by your grace, by your loving kindness. Lord, we were drowning in a stormy sea of of sin, and we were unable to help ourselves. But yet you reached out to us and rescued us and saved us, and Lord, we're thankful for that, and we praise you for that. God in heaven, this evening we, we come to the scripture and we read Psalm 67 with with interest and with attention. And Lord, we we look beyond just the literary uh, indicators and we seek to to understand it as you've preserved it for us. Lord, we want to observe the worship of God and observe your work in us. I pray, God, that you would go before us now and be our teacher. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we come to Psalm 67 and and I'm approaching this by asking two questions. Two questions there, numbers one and two in your notes. Number one, what happens while we worship? Number two, what happens when we worship? 
What happens while we worship, number one? Number two, what happens when we worship? In other terms, what do we experience during our worship? That's number one. What do we experience during our worship while we're worshiping? And then number two, what is accomplished because of our worship or after our worship or when we we worship? And so let's consider these in turn. Number one, what happens while we worship? What do we experience during worship? Verse number one, Psalm 67, verse one, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Now, Verse number one may sound strangely familiar to you, and that's good. It's an adaptation of the Aaronic priestly blessing found in Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26, in which the high priest of Israel would pronounce a blessing upon the people. If we had the time this evening, we could go to Numbers 6, 24 to 26, and we could compare that with verse number 1. It became part of the religious liturgy of Old Testament Israel from the time of the Exodus through the period of the temple and even then on into New Testament synagogue worship. For centuries, Jewish fathers blessed their children and w- with these words. And even today, you, you may hear Psalm 67, verse number 1, recited as part of an invocation or as a dedication. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. But whereas Psalm 67 begins with these words, typically these words were not used at the opening or the, the beginning of an event, but rather at the conclusion, at the benediction of an event or a service. It was normally used at the end of a, of a service. So, so here's, here's what we might understand. It's as if we're walking in late to the proceedings in the tabernacle or the temple, and we're only catching the tail end of the service. Have you ever done that? Have you ever walked in late? You missed the whole service, right? Maybe when the time changed or whatnot, or you got delayed for whatever reason, and you kind of come in at the end, and you're not really sure what happened. Clearly, you missed something, and they're, they're kind of wrapping things up and dismissing everyone. Um, it's time for the people to be dismissed from the worship service. It's time for the people to leave the meeting and head to their homes. At the end of our services, we often make announcements, maybe give some instructions, and then we conclude in prayer, and everyone is dismissed, and and they go. So having now slipped into the end of the tabernacle service, or the temple service, or the worship service, we've heard the conclusion. We've heard the benediction, verse number one, God be merciful to us, bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us. We, We reflect now on what happens while we worship, what, what did we miss? What do we experience while we worship? And I have three observations from verse number one. First, letter A, we encounter God's mercy. God be merciful to us. So we ask ourselves, what is mercy? Mercy, of course, is the compassion and the forgiveness shown to another when it's within one's power to punish them or harm them. But rather than raining down judgment on the other, we stoop down, we reach out to help that other who is weaker or in need. Mercy is the antithesis of one whose arm is raised in judgment and punishment. And so as we meet for corporate worship, we learn of God's mercy and we experience God's mercy. 
And folks, as we gather together in assembly as, as believers in, in Jesus Christ, we sing and read the scriptures and listen to the preaching of God's word and we confess sin and we experience, as it were, God stooping down to meet us in loving kindness and compassion and he communes with us. When you are hurting and when you're in need spiritually, I have one important piece of counsel for you, and that is to come be part of the assembly that is meeting for corporate worship. You say, Pastor, that's the last place I want to go. The last thing I want to do is go to church when I'm hurting, I'm wounded, I'm suffering, I'm afraid, I'm despondent, I'm in despair. That's the very place you need to go because it's in the context of worship that we know our need for mercy and we learn of God's mercy upon us. We encounter God's mercy. But something else happens in the community of of worship. Look at verse number one. God be merciful to us and bless us. We encounter, letter B, we encounter God's blessing. His blessing. And where there is God's mercy, there is God's blessing. The word translated here, bless, it's derived from the the Hebrew word meaning to kneel. And it signifies to us the gesture of the bent knee. You might write in the margin, Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And we most often think of that posture of of bowing or bending the knee as a matter of worship, what we are giving or ascribing to God. But think of it also as receiving from God blessing when we bow. A blessing is then extended to the one who is kneeling. So then why do we bow our heads in prayer? Well, we bow our heads in prayer. We bend the knee. We adopt a posture that is ready to receive blessing from the Lord. So don't only think of the bowing and the bending as a, as a gesture of worship, but also of the receiving of, of blessing. Verse number one, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. We encounter God's mercy. We encounter God's blessing. Let us see. We encounter God's face, his face. Now, oriental monarchs over the the centuries of human history would reveal their pleasure or displeasure by their facial expressions. But never mind that. We don't need to go to the Far East and we don't need to go to ancient history. Um, I, I think perhaps in every one of our homes we express our pleasure or displeasure perhaps with our children, by our countenance, by our face. Historically, if you sought an audience from the king and the king scowled at you, or worse, if he hid his face from you and refused to look upon you, that was bad. He's either ignoring you or he's rejecting you. So listen to the plea of the psalmist throughout the the, the Psalter. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 27, verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Psalm 44, verse 24, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 69, verse 17, do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Psalm 102, verse 2, do not hide your face from me in the day of of trouble. 
And we get the picture. In worship, we humbly experience God's mercy and blessing. And in worship, we encounter God's face. We encounter these things as we ascribe worth to God in corporate worship. And and so for these reasons, so many times in the Psalms, uh, David specifically would lament his absence from the tabernacle worship. In fact, turn back with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, very familiar psalm to us, but I think it illustrates this point well. Psalm 42. David here says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my, pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, who's that? Well, those in the nations around me, the peoples around me say, where is your God? And when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. Here it is. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept pilgrim feasts. And, and the pilgrim feasts here refers to the festival, festival per- processions when, when the Hebrew people would go up to the city of Jerusalem for the high and holy days. And David is now is removed from Jerusalem and he's longing for the occasion when he would meet with God in worship with God's people in Jerusalem. Back to Psalm 67. And so we've, we've come in at the end of the service. We've arrived late, and we're just catching the very end, the benediction, this blessing, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. And then we have that word or that musical notation, Selah. And of course, as you know, scholars aren't entirely sure of its meaning, but it's, it's, it's agreed generally that it calls for some pause or reflection, and it calls for a break before the next line to allow the reader, or in this case, the worshiper, to consider what's been said. If I were formatting the Matt Morell study Bible, right, I would, I would certainly recognize this paragraph break because it's very significant. And, and the pause here at this point is important as we consider that God's mercy has just been experienced by God's people. And God's blessing is now before God's people as they've received it. And God's face has shined upon his people. But... The worship service is over, folks. The organ has finished playing and the people are leaving. So now what? And in verse 2, the psalmist answers the question, for what purpose or to what end have we gathered together and have we worshipped? The meeting's over. We can check the box. We've been there. We've done that. Uh, We can go to our homes and we can go about our, our business, right? Well, if indeed Israel experienced the blessing of God and the light of God's face upon them while worshiping, then what happens because of, it, of that? And that's really my second question. What happens when we worship? First was what happens while we worship? What happens now when we worship or what is accomplished because of our our worship? It might be better phrased not as a what question but as a why question. Why did we worship in the first place? 
What's the point or the purpose of our worship? Or if you prefer, it doesn't follow my alliteration, what happens after we worship is what we might use for for number two. And the the happening is explained in verse two. The purpose statement is found in verse number two. That your way. Anytime you encounter the word that, that's a purpose statement. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. You see, as we conclude our worship, verse 1, having been experienced now, then because of that, the rest of the world cannot possibly remain in darkness for the effects of worship don't only impact the worshiper, the attender at the service, but rather all those around. And letter A, God will be made known. Verse number two, that your way may be made known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. So the purpose of God's mercy and blessing and face is not for the selfish enjoyment of his people, but so that all the nations might know his way. And from observing God's blessing on his people, the nations would be able to deduce that God is the true God. And that was the point of God working in and through Israel so that the other nations might know that there is a God in heaven, a true and living God. I'll give you case study exhibit A, number one. The favorite Bible story of children, David and Goliath. And you, of course, recall David declaring the purpose in fighting the giant was not so that he could prove that size doesn't matter, little men can beat up big men, right? None of that. But rather, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That was the purpose for that contest. That's the reason why the author of Psalm 42, as we read just a moment ago, had such misgivings in his distress. The nations around him asked, where is your God? And that was the crisis point for him. The author of Psalm 42 was hard-pressed to make God known to them when God appeared to be absent and when the psalmist was removed from the place of worship. If David could return to Jerusalem and if he could join the assembly of, of worshipers in worship and praise to the God of heaven, then he could answer those critics. Where is your God? So then, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought that each of us came to know the Lord as the result of someone else's witness and testimony? In fact, Pastor Dan began our service this evening even hinting toward this very idea. Have you ever thought that not just you personally and your conversion and coming to the Lord, but even this church, this church is a product of someone else's witness and testimony and missionary activity. The reason that we have the gospel in Plymouth, Minnesota is because salvation was made known among the nations at some point before us. In fact, the reason that there has been such a strong gospel witness in our country over the last few hundred years is because a group of people were compelled to sail to a place where they could worship freely. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel came to the shores of the the western hemisphere and, and here in North America because there are a group of people that were driven to worship 
And as a consequence, salvation was made known among the nations, even to us individually and to us um, as a Western civilization. Look at verse number three. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So not only will God be made known in letter A, but secondly, letter B, God will be praised. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. John Piper has written a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. And I've copied some of what he's written there at the back of your notes. Um, at the beginning of his book, it's, it's really become a, a classic on the doxology of God in missions or the, the glory of God in, in missions. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal in missions. He writes, it's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Does that sound familiar? I hope so because we just read it. Verses 3 and then also verse number 4 in Psalm 67. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot command what you don't cherish. Missions will never call out, let the nations be glad. Who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. And so as we ask the question, what happens while we worship? That's verse number one. We encounter God's mercy and his blessing and his face. But what happens when we worship or because of our worship or after our worship, the purpose of our worship here is that God will be made known and that God will be praised among the nations, which is in fact our intent on a, on a weekly basis. But then verse number four is, was just referenced. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let her see, God will be enjoyed. God will be enjoyed. And folks, nothing creates gladness so completely and so fully as knowing the salvation of the Lord. Nations or people groups, communities can certainly experience political peace or social prosperity but gladness and joy can only come when the Lord, Yahweh, is their Lord, Adonai, their master, their leader. Now, we don't live under a theocracy today, and I'm not suggesting that we, we should. However, the day is coming when Jesus will rule and reign absolutely in the millennial kingdom. And there will be a theocracy when the Lord governs the nations on the earth at that time, and there will be great joy then. 
Selah. Think about that for a moment. Pause and reflect on that. Notice the paragraph break, if you will, that's indicated by that Selah. And think about that in light of the current political circumstances in our own country. You watch the news, either the local news or the national news, you're probably not um, expressing joy. You're probably frustrated. I know that I am. Think about it in light of the current geopolitical circumstances around the world. You're probably not rejoicing, but you're probably grieving. But there there will come a day when the Lord rules and reigns in absolute authority where God will be enjoyed, verse number four says, when he governs the nations on earth. Verse number five, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you then. The earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. A theme, we're coming full circle back to the theme at the beginning of the psalm. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So God will be made known, verse two. God will be praised, verse three. God will be enjoyed, verse four. God will be feared, letter D. God will be feared. Now, I know your your notes are complete, but, but don't lose me just yet here. In the Old Testament, to fear God didn't always describe the terror of punishment, but rather the reverence and the awe that is due God. The, the fear of God was often synonymous with worship. And I think that's its use here in this case. And so the fear of God or the worship of God compelled people to respond in in some way. And when we think today of of worship, we often think in our contemporary vernacular, we, we think of something that warms our hearts and makes us feel good. That was a great worship service today. What are you saying? I enjoyed it. It made me feel good. Those were my favorite songs, and, and I had a good mood. However, historically, worship wasn't a mood, but rather it was a motivation to go and to do, to respond in some way with hands and feet, to give, to serve, to go. Let me illustrate with a bit of history here. The, the first missionary endeavor of Protestants, those that protested, um, against the Romanism, the the reformers and such, if you will, the the first missionary endeavor in England bursts forth from the soil of Puritan worship. Now think about the Puritans. The Puritans were pastors and people in England and and also in New England between 1560 and 1660, about 100 years there, who wanted to purify the Church of England to bring it to theological and practical alignment with the teachings of the Scripture alone, sola scriptura, which was a cry of the Reformation. And to put it mildly, they were consumed with the pure worship of God. We know them as the Puritans. Between 1627 and 1640, 15,000 people immigrated from England to America, most of these Puritans carrying this worship and this mission of God. In fact, the seal of the colonists of the Massachusetts Bay Colony had on it a North American Indian with these words coming out of his mouth, come over into Macedonia 
and help us. Of course, it's a reference from Acts 16, verse number 9, when the Apostle Paul received that call to go. And, and for the Puritans, they saw their immigration to America as a twofold opportunity to worship God and an opportunity to teach the nations. This is, this is, by the way, history that is no longer taught in our schools. You understand? But I think it's important for us here. One of the Puritans who crossed the Atlantic in 1631 was John Eliot. He was 27 years old and later became the pastor of a new church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, about a mile from Boston. And according to Cotton Mather, there were 20 Indian tribes in that vicinity. John Eliot could not avoid the practical implications of his worship and high view of God. Because of his high view of God, because of his commitment to purity in his worship of that God, he could not avoid the practical implications. So John Eliot set out to study Algonquin. He deciphered the vocabulary and grammar and syntax and eventually translated the entire Bible and other books he valued. By the time Eliot was 84 years old, there were numerous Indian churches, some with their own Indian pastors, all because the worship of God drove him to make known the salvation of the Lord among the nations. Are you kidding me? I don't know that my worship of God has ever compelled me to do something like that. Many times, my worship of God is not for the nations but it's for myself. So while Psalm 67 may be categorized as a praise psalm or a psalm of praise, it has also been called the missionary psalm. The missionary psalm. For you might not have thought about it before, but the worship of God and the work of God in missions is inseparable. Let us worship God in a way that makes him known to the nations. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, we bow our heads. And if it were, we bend our knees in worship to you and in anticipation of your mercy, your blessing, your face to shine down upon us. And then, Lord, we rise up to praise you and we sing praises to you, we worship you, so that the nations as well may do the same. Lord, our, our worship motivates us to missions, to outreach, to evangelism, to proclaim the truth of who you are and for what you've done for us. I pray that you would keep us mindful of these things this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.